God bless you hessian-drenched confession kestrels. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. How are you? Are you having a charming day, a charming morning? If you're a brand new listener, maybe go back to one of the earlier podcasts. There's lots, lots of earlier podcasts. On Spotify, I have a playlist of my favourite Blind Boy Podcasts. Get a listen to those to acquaint yourself with the the flavour of this environment. To the regular listeners, what's the crack? We are still in the midst of a global pandemic. I don't think it's gone anywhere for a long time. Um, It's grand. I'm dealing with it. I'm dealing with it. I, I... It's... What is it now? It's only six months. Six months now of dealing with a global pandemic. So, it's... The goblin of strange and uncertain times... But I think we're no longer in the strange and uncertain times. It's now f- feeling normal. I'm seeing more and more people wearing masks in the shops. From August 10th, I believe, in Ireland, masks in shops are now mandatory. And we're just getting used to it. We're getting used to it. And, and the phrase they use is the new normal. It's becoming normal. I can't really, I can't really remember what it was like before coronavirus um, I did a podcast a few weeks back where I analysed the our coronavirus response within the stages of grief because it is grief grief is when you when you lose something and it's unex, uh, unexpected and I do think we're in the stage of acceptance now I think we're accepting the big one to accept is that I, it looks like coronavirus is probably a couple of years probably a couple of years of it being a thing even if vaccinations were to happen next month it still takes like a year for that to be effective on a huge population but we're all adjusting and changing and coping to the restrictions of it and it's not as scary anymore it's becoming normal and manageable so it's no longer this big goblin of strange and uncertain times. It's just... It's like someone in the room just doing loads of bad farts all the time. And you just have to go... I'm in I'm in a waiting room and that person over there has done eight farts. And success, successively, these eight farts are an assault on my olfactory systems. But then you kind of go... Look, fuck it, man. I'm stuck in this waiting room. This person over there has done several farts. The air is is thick with the smog of fart. It's... I'm making it worse for myself by concentrating on the smell of fart in the air. I'm... My resistance to the farts is what's making me upset. If I leave the waiting room, then I lose my place. So we can't have that. But if I obsess obsess continually about the farts in the air, then I'm just making it worse for myself. So I need to accept that the air smells like farts right now. And through that acceptance, I can go back to enjoying my magazine while I'm in the waiting room. And I'll just deal with it. There's farts in the air. What can I do? Nothing. Out of my control. So where I am at the moment with the Goblin of Strange and Uncertain Times, where I'm wondering... 
what I'm wondering is there's the optimist in me that says okay what coronavirus is, is doing is that it, it's a type of it's a forced asceticism asceticism is a spiritual practice where you deliberately deny yourself sensational pleasures it's present in a lot of major religions Muslims fast during Ramadan Catholics don't masturbate Buddha starved himself Buddhist monks don't eat uh, they, they try and eat bland, bland food Kellogg's cornflakes were invented by Protestants as a way to stop wanking that's a fact I can do a full podcast on that at some point but like asceticism the den- denying of physical pleasures to attain a spiritual understanding is a thing I don't agree with it in, ex- in, in its extremity but I think asceticism is a, is a good thing look I do it I've spoken about it before I'll get up in the morning early and run for 10 kilometers in the rain because I can face anything at the end of the, at, in, in my day if I've just ran 10 kilometers in the rain it sounds like something that's not pleasurable but in a spiritual way it actually is pleasurable and then coming home home and having a shower that's asceticism um so i'm thinking right okay we've been forced this asceticism has been forced upon us we can't socialize we can't go on holidays you can't shake someone's hand or hug them when you meet them you can't go to a pub go to a smoking area meet someone you haven't met in ages and both of you be six points deep essentially spitting into each other's faces as you chat and share in a cigarette the concept of that right now sounds absurd but that's how things were and there was that intimacy was lovely but that's gone now so my hope is that when all this lifts we'll now all have this new spiritual here and now appreciation for the little things because coronavirus has removed the little things but then I'm thinking what if this becomes so normal that when restrictions are fully lifted and, and, and the powers that be say we've, we have herd immunity, coronavirus is gone, will we be able to step back out into normal life completely? I don't think we will. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. Is this a 9-11 style event? Like... I don't remember what going to airports was like before 9-11 because I was too young. But I know you could do whatever the fuck you wanted in an airport in the 90s, lads. You could do whatever you wanted. If your friend was flying to America, you could walk through security with him. And security wasn't even security. A man from Ennis came up and smelled you for pe- to make sure your clothes weren't doused in petrol. That was it. And you could walk right up to the gate if you're f- and, and see the... Yeah, fuck it, sure, my dad worked in an airport. When I was a kid, on Sundays, I'd be brought to the airport to look at the airplanes. No security, no nothing. And then 9-11 happened and it changed everything. And now you can't bring a water bottle on a plane. And that's the inconvenient new normality. So maybe it'll be like that. Maybe it'll be like that. Maybe... And it could be a good thing. 
maybe after coronavirus you'll still see people wearing face masks. You'll still see people washing their hands and being aware of social distance. Could be a good thing all round. I tell you what, there'll be no flus this this winter. There'll be no flus, there'll be no one getting sore throats. So what have I been doing? Fuck all. Alright, I've been staying in my house. I've been visiting the shop once a week. Going for my runs. I'm back at the gym. I go to the gym twice a week. Engaging once more in the intense orgasmic pump of lifting heavy weights. Which I adore. It releases some very special brain chemicals. And I'm so grateful to be back. And being able to be in the gym. And it's safe as well. My gym is safe. There's no one there. So I'm grateful for that. I've been live streaming. Definitely my favourite thing to come out of this pandemic for me. I love doing live gigs. I miss live gigs. I miss the communal aspect of my job. The pressure of being on stage. The sense of connectivity that I have with a room full of people. Uh, When I'm doing a live podcast. Doing live streaming, I have that feeling again. Um... I'm on live stream performing to an audience of between 500 and 1,000 people each night. Just making songs or chatting. And either being creative or talking to people. And it's really fun and I'm so glad I've found that. Twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast if you want to see me doing it. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday for sure. I think I'm going to start at 8.30 this week. 8.30pm Irish time. And I do Friday and Saturday, sorry, I do Saturday and Sunday as well, but I don't tie myself down to that. Um, Just in case I do a little bit of cans on a Friday night, I don't want to be streaming with a hangover. Um, So come along and enjoy that. You can chat to me. You can chat to me live. If I'm writing songs, you can literally say to me, blind boy, write a song about Colonel Gaddafi getting his ear pierced. And I'll write it live. And it's fun. So, this week's podcast, um, I'm going to do a question answering podcast. I had a steaming hot take last week. I was very happy with last week's podcast. Investigating the history of Irish influence on pop music. I've had a lot of hot takes recently. And what I haven't done is a question answering podcast where I get tons of fucking DMs from me on Instagram and fucking on Twitter, on Patreon, and I get lots of questions. So I keep these questions, and I answer them when I can, every so often on a podcast. And every time I do it, I make the promise, I'm going to answer as many as possible, and I end up answering fucking two. But I'm really going to try and answer as many as possible this week. Alright? So I got a good question here from Avo, and she asked... Before I answer this question, actually, just a little a little heads up, a content warning, that this is about violence towards women and sexual assault, but I won't... I'm not going to speak about anything in... with a kind of an ir- irresponsible level of detail that it might be triggering for some people's trauma. I'm going to speak about it in, in, a, in a responsible way. And still, if you don't want to hear it at all... Just fast forward 20 minutes, alright? About 20 minutes. So Avo asks, Well blind boy, do you have a hot take on how women are always urged and taught to do things to protect themselves? For example, carry car keys between their fingers 
Don't sit in your car in public places. Don't wear revealing clothes, etc. Instead of urging and teaching men that they shouldn't attack women and the many things women have to do for their own safety because rape culture is so heavily embedded into our society and victim blaming is extremely common. It's not exactly a question, more of a topic of conversation, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'm currently reading your book and I'm a podcast listener. I've been following your work from when I was far too young and I'm a fan of everything you've done from Rubber Bandits to the BBC documentary. That's fucking gas. I've been following your work from when I was far too young. That's gas, because Avo's obviously now an adult who's been looking at Rubber Bandit shit since she was fucking eight and now as an adult is going... I shouldn't have been looking at this. I shouldn't have been watching this, but I was. And now here I am. Um, so I've I've dealt with this topic on one of my very earliest podcasts. I can't remember the name of it. It was... I did one where I tackled kind of, I suppose, toxic masculinity. And I spoke about consent and misogyny and how I was raised... How, how I was raised as, as a man in a misogynistic culture to benefit from misogyny and how I was raised to be a misogynist as such with misogynistic views and how I've had to challenge all them uh, and relearn things as I get older and become an adult. One thing, so one of the questions there, like I was well into my fucking 20s, late 20s nearly, before I started to realise the absolute freedom that I enjoy as a man when I'm just going for a run. When I go for a run, I'm I'm never ever thinking about is someone going to attack me? It just doesn't enter my head. It's... When I was a teenager, and when when you're a teenager, there's... Groups of lads who go around in gangs and they want to rob your phone or they want to rob your money. And I used to worry about that when I was a teenager. But then, once you get to an adult, being an adult man, the idea of being attacked is, you'd think about it the same way you'd think about, will I get hit by a car? But with women, it has to be a continual, non-stop awareness how must I, instead of enjoying the run that I'm going to go on, or a lo- I always get asked loads too, whenever I speak about travelling, because I go to Spain on my own to write, to write, and I always get women in my DMs asking me, blind boy, when you spoke about going to Spain there on your own for three weeks, that's something I would love to do, but I just can't because it's just not safe. I, I don't feel it's safe to do. And... It always gets me thinking about rather than having a society where the onus is on women to protect themselves, that what do you do instead? Can we have a society where men feel greater responsibility to not attack? Um, Now, one thing I said back there, because it's something I was pulled up on before, when I say that as a man I don't fear being attacked or don't fear being sexually assaulted and someone points out that like men do get sexually assaulted, men do get uh, attacked, it's true. That's a fact and I'm not denying uh, those experiences. 
or denying anyone's pain around that. All I'm saying is is that legitimately it's 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 not really something I think about or I've ever had to think about. To be honest, it it, it doesn't it doesn't come into my awareness, nor have I ever needed it to or or felt physically threatened in a situation. Um what I think back to is that the so I was taught from a very very young age right and a lot of other lads are you're taught from a very young age to not be physically violent with girls okay don't hit girls and most lads are taught this and what what I'm what it's caused me to reflect on is the way in which it was taught to me was actually quite fucking toxic, right? And I think this might be part of the problem. It's it's just one aspect, one aspect. It's just something I want I want to reflect on. So when I was like three, three or four, when when you're when you're a toddler, we'll say when you're a toddler and you're able to walk, and when you're a toddler and you're in play school. And you act out. And you hit other kids. Because that's what toddlers do. If the other kid... If you're a, you're a, a young boy. And the other kid that you hit. Happens to be a fucking girl. You're immediately... Like whoever the adult around is. You're chastised immediately. And you're very quickly told. No, no, no. You don't hit the girl. But the thing is. The way that it was told to me. And the way that it's told to other lads it was never explained to me as a little boy don't hit that girl because it's wrong to hit another person it was sold to me as no 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 you're a big strong man you're a big strong man and you, you girls are weak and you mustn't hit this girl because if you hit her you you could knock her stone dead now the thing is i'm 3 now, if you remember being three, or even as far up as six or seven, girls would kick your fucking head in. When, when, when I was six, girls were three foot taller than me, and were bigger and stronger, and as a young boy, I, I would have gotten my fucking head kicked in by girls in the schoolyard. They were bigger and stronger. It was that simple. But yet, I was being told... No, no, you must not hit the girl in particular because you're a big, strong man. You're a big, strong man and you have this potential force and power. And you end up then, it's like the adult tells you that you have this sword. It's it's like you've got this sword like Excalibur and this sword is your, your masculinity that you must... It's chivalry. You're... you're it's not about basic human respect. Instead of it being this girl or this boy is a separate human being and this separate human being has rights and they have a right to exist in this schoolyard without their physical safety being in danger. Right? That's the healthy thing to say to someone. You don't hit other people because other people in a civilised society have a right to exist and have a right to piss you off without their physical safety being put in danger 
that's not what's said to young boys. That's not what was said to me. What was said to me was nothing about the other person's boundaries, nothing about the other person's humanity, nothing about the other person's rights. It was, she is a weak little girl and you're a big strong man. And then it's seen as shameful then if a lad... What, where, where that kind of goes then as an adult, right? And you'll see this in Facebook comments. If you see an article on the Irish Times or the journal.ie about domestic abuse, most men will get very angry in the comments. And most men will say things like, what a fucking scumbag. I'll kick his head in and the men appear to be rallying behind in support of of the the woman who's been domestically abused and they appear to be shaming the man who's the abuser and wishing uh, retribution upon him and from a distance that can look like a positive thing. It's like, okay, all these lads get it. They get it. What's been done here is a bad thing and... Domestic abuse is bad. But. I think those adult men with that anger. They're not angry for the right reasons. They're angry. Because the man broke the code of chivalry. That we've been told since the age of three. And that has actually nothing to do with respecting another person's boundaries. or, Or another person's right to live safely. What they've done is. You've been given the secret Excalibur sword of masculinity. And you made a promise when you were three to never use this sword against weak women. Instead you must use it to defend their honour. And you, you, you used the magic sword wrong. And they're chastising him for that. It's not about respect. It's not about boundaries. It's not about human rights. It's not about dignity. It's getting angry for the wrong reasons. And that then is toxic. And then, when it comes to something like rape or sexual assault, you end up with grown men who categorise sexual assault into... I don't want to say what, what, what they'd call good and bad. It's a lot of men in order to get angry about hearing about a sexual assault and a rape, they then need to know, they need to know or find out, well, did he beat her as well? Do you get me? It's not about a person's uh, right, human right to consent, to to consent to have boundaries around their sexuality. It's not about the person's right to, to say, I consent to this, I don't consent to that. What it becomes about is, well, which type of sexual assault was it? Was it the one where he physically also beat her? And then when that happens, you'll get most men getting really angry going, that fucking bastard, he beat her up. And we're also raised with this idea of... A a, a rapist or a person who... A rapist... Is like a boogeyman that hides down dark alleyways and commits acts of physical violence as well as sexual violence. And that's what we're raised with. We are raised with 
don't hit girls because girls are really weak and you must protect them. And who, who, all right, who am I protecting them from? The creepy boogeyman rapist in a dark trench coat who lives down an alleyway and jumps out and catches weak women and beats them up and then forces sex on them. And that's all we're kind of told regarding sexual assault. So we're, we're given this incredibly narrow, unrealistic vision of what is and isn't a rapist, okay? And when something then arises in the media where someone is saying that they were raped or sexually assaulted and when it doesn't then fit into this unrealistic narrow definition of what men are told you get men not believing if the situation is a woman coming forward saying I was at a house party and I went into bed with this fella and then he raped me you get lads not believing they're going no you asked for it you asked for that what were you wearing why did you go into bed all these questions absolutely ridiculous unrealistic questions now if you said to the same lads okay you get into a taxi and you say to the taxi drive me home and then instead the taxi driver drives you to Dublin airport and charges you 300 quid how would these men feel about that well that's completely fucking wrong but you got into the taxi buddy yeah but I told him I wanted to go home I didn't say I wanted to go to Dublin airport they'd understand it very quickly then but when it comes to having to think that someone who who sexually assaults is someone who looks like them someone who looks like your dad your brother your neighbour we're not taught that we're taught that about the boogeyman the unrealistic dirty boogeyman who like a type of ogre like troll who uses physical violence to attack women breaks the rule of chivalry and uses physical violence but if it doesn't fit within that then they're questioning whether the woman is telling the truth or not and that right there is a straight up misogynistic mythology that young boys are taught that has nothing to do with human rights consent boundaries it has to do with fluffing the male ego and justifying what is considered appropriate behaviour for a young boy if a young boy is physically aggressive we're not chastised we're kind of it's 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 like if you go to if a young fella hits a girl in the schoolyard or hits another lad but mainly when they hit a girl the adult says no 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 I know you're a young strong little boy and this is what you do boys will be boys but you must understand this great power you have you have to use it for good and it's it's rewarded when I remember it I remember I, it was it was actually a, it was a female teacher telling me it was if it wasn't me it was one of the lads I was with or something and very very young now I'm talking play school and saying you're big strong lads you're a big strong man now you can't go around hitting girls and you don't feel as if you're being given out to you don't feel as if you've just been told you've done something bad you feel like you're getting a compliment 
It's a real strange back. It stops you hitting girls. But it doesn't stop you hitting girls for the right reason. Um, it, it, it also... The other lads then will police other lads' behaviour. So if by the age of six or seven, if you're the lad on the schoolyard who's hitting girls, the other lads will beat you up because you've broken the rule. Now what happens if... What happens if the young boy gets into an argument with a little girl and instead of hitting her, he gets upset and he starts crying? Then you feel like you're in trouble. Then the teacher comes over and says, what are you crying for? That's what little girls do. That's wrong. Fuck that. Don't be crying. You're a big strong man. I thought you were a big strong man. Big strong little boys don't... You don't cry. What you do is you have a magical sword and you have to keep it sheathed at all times. And only use it to slay the, the boogeyman dragon. But don't be crying. What, what use are you when you're crying? And... Again, your your outlets of emotional expression are then confined to certain types of anger. And you end up with... That's how adult men end up punching walls because tears are removed from our emotional vocabulary at quite a young age. I I, I can nearly measure... I'm... (laughs) I measure my adulthood. If I think back, you, I remember, you know, you know when you're 10, 10 and you're keeping tabs on, on the last time you cried. 10 years of age and, and you're going, I cried last March because my ma wouldn't let me play the Nintendo and I cried last March but I've done three months now with no crying and I remember measuring my sense of, of how old and mature and manly I am by how much I couldn't cry or didn't cry and then you get to 14, 15 and maybe something makes you cry once a year and then in my late teens uh, my father died suddenly and I didn't cry at all I couldn't cry the biggest issue I had around my grief was the, the, the sole issue around my grief my father dying suddenly was being unable to cry I couldn't cry I felt numb and Wondering whether that was okay or not, or whether I should cry, and you're going, "Why the fuck do you think what's crying is a human thing? That's what happens when you're sad." And I'm spending all my time stressing about, "Is it okay to cry now? Am I bad because I'm not crying? Am I a bad person because I can't cry?" Instead of going, "You've been told you're not supposed to cry since you're three because you're a big strong man who doesn't hit girls, so what are you crying for?" Really fucked up, and then. Just taking it back to the schoolyard violence. When I was six or seven, no, no, younger, maybe four or five. And I remember being on a slide in a playground that was near my gaff. And I was at, it was a very big slide and I was always kind of scared of this slide. It was a slide that had been put in the 1970s. And 1970s playgrounds were no joke. Like, Jesus Christ, when I think back to the playground that was near my gaff. I saw my friend nearly split his head open because he fell off the fucking slide. It was 13, 14, 15 feet in the air. Just way too big for kids. But this is how they built slides in the 70s. And I would have been playing on this in the 90s before it was it was removed. It was removed in the very early 90s. But anyway, I was at the top of this slide. Always kind of scared of going down it because it was 
12 times my height. This was a 13, 14 foot slide. And while I was on the top of this slide, this older girl who I didn't know was behind me. And she wanted to go down the slide too. And I was being scared and like taking my time going down this slide. She got pissed off and kicked me really hard into the back. And I went flying down the slide and probably started bawling, crying. No, I remember really consciously holding the tears in because girls were around and I'm, I was four or five and I'd just been kicked down the slide really hard into the back by a girl and it felt humiliating and it felt like my rights had been taken away. I'm trying to enjoy a slide and I've just been kicked into the back and a girl did it. She got physically aggressive and kicked me really hard into the back. She was older, she was about eight. But then like no one saw her doing it. But what would have happened if an adult chastised that girl for kicking me down the slide? Would they have said to her, you're a big strong woman now and he's a younger boy and you can't be hitting boys? No. She would have been chastised because acts of physical violence for a little girl are not seen as ladylike or feminine. She would have been chastised for the physical aggression part. It would have had nothing to do with. That little boy has a right to be on that slide. And that little boy has a right to be nervous on that slide. And that little boy has a right to go down the slide and not be kicked into the back. You've removed his rights right there. His right to physical safety. That wouldn't have been communicated to that girl. She would have been told, don't kick other people because that's not ladylike. However, if uh, I wasn't moving on the slide and her response, instead of what, what, what her response should have been, no, I shouldn't say should have been because she's a kid. If an adult was present, what an adult should have said was, was, that little boy is nervous. He's entitled to be nervous. Um, give him his space and sit with the... Delay your gratification. Let him go down the slide in his time and you'll have your turn. That's the mature, responsible thing that should have happened there. But let's just say she didn't kick me into the back and send me flying down the slide. Instead, she started bawling, crying. He won't move. I want to use the slide and he won't move. And she starts bawling, crying. Which, again, isn't a fully... I don't want to be judgmental of kids, but an adult should step in there and say, even you crying there, maybe have some patience and let him down the slide. But if she did cry, she'd have been rewarded for that because it's okay then for little girls to cry. That would be seen as ladylike, but definitely don't kick him because that's not ladylike. And then what happens? You know, she grows into an adult woman with narrow uh, boundaries of emotional expression and she feels angry and instead of expressing anger it comes out as tears and now she's crying but she's actually angry and doesn't understand why tears are the response to something that should be anger and what you have there is again it's none of it has to do with people's boundaries none of it has to do with consent None of it has to do with rights. It's all bizarre, gendered 
scripts about how two genders should and shouldn't be and it has nothing to do with rights. And both those cases are, are incredibly unhelpful, misogynistic fantasies that don't apply to reality. And in the case of lads, to be raised like that, to be raised with don't hit girls because you're a big strong man and they're weak like and use your only protect women from these imaginary uh, boogeymen who jump out from alleyways and physically assault and sexually assault you have to protect them from that you end up with adults who then believe these things internally because they're so deeply internalised from a young age and then you end up with a fucking legal system which has a narrow definition of what sexual assault and rape is and tends to believe abusers, protect abusers rather than people who are being abused. So I was asked for a hot take and that's that's my that's just one train of thought I have around the whole issue. It's it's one personal train of thought that I have when analysing my own life and things that I was taught and learned it's obviously far more fucking complex and bigger than what I've just mentioned there that's just one little thing that I answered in response to a specific question I've definitely spoken about this stuff in earlier podcasts I can't think of the names of them okay I'm going to answer another question now something which is less um, emotionally taxing and emotionally heavy because that's a tough that's emotionally taxing territory for me to talk about and I'm sure it is for you to listen to Alan asked if you were in government now what laws would you change Um, I don't know about like okay not specific laws my general beliefs and what I would like in, in, a, in the society I live in right and I get called a fucking Marxist, communist. I get heavily chastised. People thinking that I'm I'm fucking Joseph Stalin. And all I want, all I want, right? This is all I fucking want. And this, I this is what I I got this from my dad. My dad was a socialist, we'll say, bordering on communist. But all I want out of a society, I believe. That housing, healthcare, and education should be a given. That's it. That's what I want. Housing, healthcare, education. That, regardless of who the fuck you are in a society, uh, regardless of how much money you have, whatever your conditions were growing up, that everybody, without restriction, should have equal access to housing, healthcare, and education. That's it. All right? Nobody should be denied a home because they can't afford it. And some people think that sounds mad. It's like, so everyone, everyone should get things for free. Why, why not? Why? I consider home... Why can't having a home be a human right? An undeniable, unalienable human fucking right? 
there's people in Ireland living in tents and living on the street. That should be illegal. Alright? And I don't mean criminalising the person who's doing it. It should... There should be a department and the responsibility of this department is to provide that person with a home. And I say the word home because... Look, here's the situation we have in Ireland at the moment. Let's just take homelessness, okay? This is... This isn't spoken about enough. This is very fucked up. And I'm going to say this in the, in the least amount of words that I possibly can. We have a situation in Ireland called emergency accommodation, right? So if someone finds themselves in homelessness in Ireland, what do they do? What, 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 what have they access to? Well, they have access to what's known as emergency accommodation, where mostly if it's someone with a family they are put into a hotel room it's called emergency accommodation which would suggest that it's temporary but in all it's in all practicality it's not used as a temporary solution it's it's a long-term solution there are people who can't afford to live in a house and they're living in a hotel room usually like it could be a mother and a father and three kids living in a fucking hotel room for three years. Alright. Now here's what's even more fucked up. First off that's not a home. Right. You you can't prepare your own food in a hotel room. You can't do the basic human things. The dignity. That give you a sense of meaning in life. Preparing food for your family. Uh, washing your clothes. Personal hygiene. A sense of space. A sense of privacy. These things don't exist in emergency accommodation. I've... I've stayed in hotel rooms for two weeks in a row. After two weeks, it's unpleasant. We're talking about people in Ireland for th- three years in a hotel room with a family, right? That's not living. That's not a home. And then you think, wh- well, why are these people not given access to social housing or some type of affordable accommodation or just simply given a free house so that they don't, you know, to keep them from the streets? Why isn't that happening? We must not be able to afford that if that's not happening. No, 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 no. What's happening is, yes, we can afford the country. People have jobs. People pay taxes. There's money for the government to build social housing. They're not building social housing. They are not building. If you gave that family access to social housing, they would have the ability to cook their own food, the ability to wash, the ability to have a degree of privacy, these human things that give life meaning. These people can't have that. Yes, we can afford to build social housing. We don't. Instead, we have a very fucked up system whereby tax money that comes from... If you work and you pay taxes and you're wondering, fuck it, the government are taking all these taxes from my wages. Why are there still people on the streets? Why are there people living in emergency accommodation? Because they've created a quite a corrupt system whereby... They take the tax money that should be used to build social housing and instead of building a social housing, they give money to people who own hotels and the person, who, the family that's living in emergency accommodation, it costs the taxpayer maybe two grand a week. Two grand a week to keep a family in a hotel room. That's tax money. Two grand a week is a huge amount of money. And instead of that money going to build a house... The government are spending like 
maybe 150 grand a family, 200 grand a family a year to keep them perpetually in this emergency accommodation. And the person who owns the hotel or the company who owns the hotel is profiting from human misery and profiting from homeless people continually staying in an inhumane environment and it's in perpetuity, it never ends. So that right there, I consider that corruption. And, and then you go, why? why? Why is that the case? Because that's called neoliberalism. The government, ideologically, does not believe in providing people with quote-unquote free housing. That that's not incentive. They want to de-incentivize de people from homelessness, so you punish them. And it's just... So rather, what I would like to change is that... Instead, if someone becomes homeless, for the many reasons that people become homeless, it's not just lack of money, it could be mental health issues, it could be dealing with issues of trauma, there's a load of things. It could be addiction, huge amount of issues. If someone doesn't have access to housing and they end up on the street, you give them access to social housing. They have a home, you give them a home, you build them a fucking house. With the money that exists, that's being used, it's being funneled into hoteliers your tax money is being taken and someone's profiting off it and the person who loses out is the homeless person who's being made a fucking fool of and being kept in inhumane uh, emergency accommodation take the money for that and build a fucking house and allow that person the human dignity to live in a house to cook food look look after their family and do these things so that should be a human right. No one should live in emergency accommodation and nobody, it should be illegal. All right? And I don't mean criminalising the homeless person. Uh, someone should not be living in a tent on the side of the road. They Yes, they should be given a home with the money from tax. All right? Yes. And think of that what you want. If you think, but then sure, no one will work and everyone will have a free house. That's not how humans work. Humans, humans aren't like that. Humans aren't like that. Alright? Humans always... A healthy human... Always searches for meaning... And self-improvement... And things like that... When they're given the opportunity. Alright? Healthcare, similarly. Alright? If you're... If you're poor... And you get sick... Then you should have access to... Exactly the healthcare that you need to get better, and if you can't afford it, I'm going to pay for it with my taxes. Fuck private health. Fuck the deliberate dismantling of our health service. I've no problem with the HSE. Many fine people working in the HSE who work their absolute fucking arses off. Right? Same with the mental health services. P nurses, doctors, psychotherapists working as hard as they can. And why are the services ineffective? Is it their fault? No, it's not. It's poorly managed from the top. And some would argue it's deliberate. Again, a deliberate attempt to fuck up a public service so that you can hand it over to the private market. That's the neoliberal belief. Don't directly provide for people. Instead, try and hand everything over to this wonderful animal known as capitalism, the private market. And finally, education. I'm someone, I I didn't grow up with a huge amount of money, but I didn't grow up in poverty. So I had the weird situation of growing up in Limerick, 
my parents owned the house that we lived in. It was I, We had a mortgage, which afforded me a certain amount of privilege. But even though there was a mortgage, both my parents worked and the jobs they worked weren't particularly well paid. So we had our own house, but I still needed a medical card for access to healthcare because of my asthma. But and when it came to college, all right, because my parents wouldn't have been af- able to afford to send me to college, because it was in the mid-2000s and things were slightly better, I went to college for practically free with a means-tested grant. The Department of Education had a look at my parents' income and said, well, you can't afford to send him to college, so taxes are going to pay for it. And as a result, even though I fucked up my leave insert, I went to art college and it was paid for with a means-tested grant. These things are slowly being eroded now. Um, In 2020... I don't think I'd have gotten that grant to go to college. I think I'd have just have had to not go to college. I don't think a job would have existed because college fees have gone up massively too. I just don't think I'd have gone to college. So that's what I'd change about the country. That's what I want. Healthcare, education, housing, their human rights and everyone should have equal access to them. And it's as simple as that. That's how I. That's that's the society I want to live in, and I hate making that fucking awful capitalist argument for it. You see, it's the same argument they want you to make regarding immigration, when, in like something like when it comes to pe- people like asylum seekers who are escaping horrors, some people argue that, oh well, if they work, then they're taxpayers, and it's measuring someone's worth in terms of their economic. Uh, contribution which I don't believe in but if you have a fucking society where healthcare, housing and education are afforded equally to everybody you've got a better fucking society you've got less crime you've got the the ills of society tend to dissipate when people are given equal opportunity like that so that's what I'd change about the country that's what I'd like to see and do you like if you want to chastise me there and say, blind boy, you're a fucking Marxist Egypt with his head in the clouds. Marxists are just people who spend other people's money. You can't print money. The, mo- the money exists. We're all paying taxes. What you need to be getting pissed off about is your tax is being funneled into private interests to perpetuate problems and not solve them. We have socialism in this country, lads. We've got socialism for rich people. I described their emergency accommodation. Taking tax money, exploiting vulnerable people, and then funneling and paying that tax money to privately owned hotels. That's hotels getting loads and loads of tax money, getting real rich. That's where your taxes are going. That's socialism for the rich. We are a country that huge multinational corporations come to this country and because of our cheap low corporation tax of 12.5% but they're not even paying 12.5% look at the Apple ruling there Um, between I believe it's 2003 and 2014 Apple paid something like 0.1% tax they're not even paying the even if they paid the 12.5% which is the lowest in Europe even if they paid that they're not they're paying nothing the most fucking richest country in the world that's socialism for rich people. We have it. Get pissed off at that. Alright? That's what you want to get pissed off at. I want 
the taxes that already exist to become socialism for people that are poor. What's wrong with that? Um, speaking of socialism, it is time for the ocarina pause. I don't have the ocarina. I don't have any instruments directly at hand. What I do have, I've got a little tub of, of retinol eye cream that I use after my, when I'm live streaming. This one is kale, aloe vera, sunflower oil, trepidide 5 and retinol. When I'm live streaming, my eyes get sore, so I use a little eye cream afterwards. I also have a USB stick. So we're going to have the eye cream and USB stick pause, and I'm going to bang these off each other gently. And while I do this, you may or may not hear an advert. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. That was the eye cream and USB stick pause. The podcast that I'm making right now is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Um, I don't have any live gigs during the global pandemic. I don't know when. I'd, I'd, I'd say a year, maybe, before I can gig again, realistically. So this podcast is my sole source of income. And I'm able to earn a fucking living. And from this podcast, because of the patrons of the podcast, all right? Um, so all I'm asking really is if you're listening to this podcast, if you're enjoying it, if you're listening to it regularly, this is my work. So just pay me for the work that I'm doing. All I'm looking for is the price of a cup of coffee or a pint once a month. That's it. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Um, pay me for the work I'm doing. Also, it allows me editorial freedom. Every so often I will have an advertiser on the podcast, but I'm not beholden to any of them. I can tell advertisers to fuck off. I have been telling advertisers to fuck off. I've been approached by two advertisers in the past week. I don't agree with... I don't want to sell their shit. And I just said, no, don't want to do this. Um, I don't believe in the product. So I'm, I'm able to do that because of the Patreon. And it means that full editorial control. I can speak about whatever the fuck I want to... I don't have to pander to advertisers and what the thing that you like about this podcast can maintain because it's funded by the listener, directly funded. It's a wonderful model. Even better, if you can afford to give me the price of the pint and you're listening to this and you're someone who can afford to give me the price of a pint once a month, then you're the person I'm asking to pay, pay for my work. But there's other people and they can't afford it. They're either out of work or they're a student and the price of that pint means a lot to them. You're paying for them to listen for free. 
So it's a very equal democratic model. I earn a living from it. And people who can't afford it are listening to the podcast for free. It's just absolutely fucking fantastic. I plug the Patreon every week because people come and go. So I have to keep at it. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. And thank you so much to everyone who is a patron. Once a month I run a little lottery. I will contact one patron at random and I will send you a hand drawing, one of a kind hand drawing in the post. Alright? So that's the crack. Let's answer another question. What? How long are we? What time is this? You'll be pleased to know again. Four in the morning here because I've fucking destroyed my sleep patterns. Um, I don't know what sleep is anymore. I do, I do, I, I don't like sleeping. I don't really like sleeping. I'm not. It's, it's not that I've difficulty sleeping. I just think it's pointless. It's lying horizontally in a dark room, and I just can't wait to get up in the morning. Um, my Twitch stream as well. I'd be finishing the Twitch stream at eleven at night, and my brain is just hopping and buzzing. And it. it I don't want to go and lie horizontally in the dark. I want to drink tea and look at Wikipedia articles. So I'm up at four o'clock recording this podcast and that's fine. That's fine. And I'll be in bed by five, most likely. And that's fine too. Grand. I'll get up at ten. I don't really need sleep. Um, so, so Niamh asks, what is the best way to work through writer's block? It's been going for on for a while. I'm a bit of a, in a bit of a slump for the better part of the pandemic myself. So firstly, it's okay to be have a bit of writer's block during the coronavirus pandemic, all right? The world is scary. Um, <clears throat> you're stuck inside home. You're not re- receiving a lot of input into your unconscious mind. A lot of people put themselves under huge stress, stress at the start of this pandemic to write a book, to write an album. And it just didn't happen for some people. And there's people right now feeling mad disappointed. Okay, it's okay. I'm like I I have I should be. I don't want to say I should be writing a book now. I have the uh, I'm going to be writing two more books. I'm definitely writing two more books. Uh, by which I mean two books are on the table. There's two books being offered to me, and I'm not doing that right now because. I don't think I can write books right now in in the four walls of my house. In order for me to write fiction, I need to leave my house. I need to sit in a cafe. I need to see human beings walking around me. Uh, so I'm not writing right now. I'm going to give it a bit more space. So instead what I'm doing is I'm making music. I can make music at home. If you want to, to be perfectly honest. Okay, so my Twitch stream. I'm on Twitch. And I'm playing a video game called Red Dead Redemption. Which is a virtual environment set in the Wild West. And I have all my musical equipment. And what I do is I write songs live. And I use Red Dead Redemption as inspiration for what the song is going to be about. That right there is me proactively and actively 
confronting writer's block. That's the opposite of sitting down with a piano or a guitar and telling myself I have to write a song. So, in order to overcome writer's block, you have to be playful. You have to be playful and non-judgmental. So, when I'm riding around a digital environment on a horse and I decide I need to write a song about a tree that appears in the distance, I have no criticality there. I'm not thinking this is going to be good or this is going to be bad. I'm simply doing for the sake of doing. So what I would suggest to you, the easiest way, so the last book that I wrote, my second book, I had a bit of writer's block here and there. So what I said to myself was, I'd give myself a word count. I'd say, today I'm going to write 500 words of something. It doesn't have to be good, it doesn't have to be bad, but I'm writing 500 fucking words. And I would promise myself that at the very least. And some days I would write 500 words that I wasn't happy with at all, that I wouldn't use, and it's tough. But at least I got my 500 fucking words. Because if I didn't, the writer's block would get worse. So the easiest way to get out of the writer's block, you you simply have to do. You have to do. Writer's block can only be unravelled in the act of doing. It won't be unravelled thinking about writing, reading about writing, planning about planning writing, it only gets raveled, unraveled in the act of doing. So you need to fucking write. And a good way to get sometimes writer's block is created when you have visions or notions about what good and bad is. So take yourself out of the fucking comfort zone. When I if it's scary to say what the fuck do I write 500 words about? That's when you start incorporating random input. When I'm playing Red Dead Redemption, it's just an excuse to give me random input to write songs. I do two hours on Red Dead Redemption and write about five songs. Four of them aren't great. Usually one is is, is good. That's how it works. Random input for you can be anything. Um, Open up a picture book. Book that doesn't have words and has loads of pictures or open up a web browser and go into the web browser and type in random image generator and let it generate for you any picture any visual picture and just write 500 words about that picture and the act of let's just say it's a a, a fucking a swan with a fire engine in, in the distance something utterly ridiculous random input tends to present us with really ridiculous suggestions and because the suggestions are so ridiculous that takes us out of our comfort zone it makes us not scared and just write about the random image that's generated and say to yourself I'm going to write about this for 500 fucking words and if you can do that it will relax you to the point that you can access your true creativity that's that's just what happens and that's simply doing And if you write the 500 words and you're not happy with them, it's still a success because you wrote 500 words. And if you write 500 words and you're like, you're really unhappy with them, in a week's time, that which you were unhappy with can actually come back as a fully formed idea. So, writer's block is combated by the act of doing. You have to do. There's no other way. You do. You simply write. 
if it's painting, you paint. Take yourself out of your comfort zone. Bring in ridiculousness and humor. The five conditions for creativity, right? Number one, you give yourself space. So you create, uh, for me when I'm writing a book, space is a cafe. But it could be a desk, it could be your couch, whatever. Formalized tends to work nicely. When you have a little desk and a chair and a laptop, and this is turn off your fucking internet unless it's essential. Right. Second thing you want to do is time. You need to give yourself two hours. You need to actually say to yourself, this is my two hours for writing now. And it's not two hours where I get up every five minutes to make tea or where I check my phone all the time. Put the phone into a different room. This is two hours for just writing. Okay? Third thing you want to do is confidence, right? Now, confidence, you can have confidence while thinking you're not confident. Confidence to me would mean I am confident that I'm going to write 500 words. That's all it needs to be. It's not the confidence of this is going to be good. No, I'm going to write 500 words and I have two hours to do it and I'm confident that I'm going to reach that. There you go. And then finally, humour. All right, you have to, you have to allow humour into what you're doing. You have to laugh at yourself. You have to allow ridiculousness. You have to allow silliness. Even if you're a writer who doesn't write silly, ridiculous things, the beauty of silliness and ridiculousness is they circumnavigate or not circumnavigate. They they subvert the part of ourselves that takes us too seriously. If you're taking yourself too seriously, if you're thinking about, I'm a, I'm a good writer, I want to write like Sally Rooney, I want to write like James Joyce, that's the shit that keeps you from creativity. You have to connect with the playful, fun part of yourself that w- when you were three or four years of age playing with Lego and you didn't care what the Lego looked like because you were just doing Lego, that's why you bring in absurdity and silliness and foolishness. It's just a way to unlock your creativity. That's why I said bring random images into it. Bring silly images into it. Bring ridiculousness into it. Write about a farting teapot. Because once you start writing about the farting teapot, first off, you've set yourself up for failure. There's no such thing as failure. The only failure is creating nothing because you were scared to try. That's the only failure. But if you write 500 words about a farting teapot, it will unlock the part of you where the ideas you really care about come from. But only a farting teapot can unlock that. Um, what's the wrong thing to do? The wrong thing to do is to do nothing because you were scared to try. That's the that, that perpetuates creative block. So, create physical space for yourself. Give yourself time, about two hours. Be confident that you're going to get your 500 words done. And bring in humour and absurdity and ridiculousness into your process. And that will get you out of writer's block. And it will get you real comfortable with... If you do that uh, five days a week, four of those days, you're going to write something that you really don't like. And the more and more you write something you're on, you're unhappy with, the less you self-flagellate for writing something you're not happy with. So, 
it's a win-win. So one last question though. This one was from Stephanie. This is a big question and I really want to answer it in a concise way. My microphone has decided to start going fucking flaccid. Hold on, I've got a microphone that... You know what the microphone does? It moves forward. And then the pop shield tickles my nose and makes me want to sneeze. So Stephanie asks... Beautiful question. Um, Over the past week or so, I've become more aware of how I'm human rather than a bit of dust in the wind and that I'm a microscopic speck in a vast, vast universe. I found it difficult to come to terms with it and get extremely emotional when those thoughts pop up again and again. Do you have any advice on how to overcome these strong emotions that come with these thoughts and to keep grounded as I've struggled with meditation as I've always been taught that meditation is time that you spend in the now in silence and staying still, which is something I struggle with so much. I'm laughing there. I'm laughing there, Stephanie, because uh, that's just such a beautiful common. I bet you, I don't know what age Stephanie is. I would, I would wager that Stephanie is like 19, 20. Because that particular, that's such a 19, 20 thing. It's, what that's called, Stephanie, is that's existential anxiety. And all humans get that at one point in their life. I think 1920 is is a, a big age for that. It's when you become an adult and you take a look around and you just go, what the fuck is life? I mean, the nature of that is, what the fuck is life? And pondering the overwhelming it's like it's like when I used to get anxiety, you know, you look up at the fucking sky and and you try and think of the size of the universe and it can make you feel really scared and small and reality is is deeply irrational and when you think about the size of everything and even what is being alive, what is these are questions of human existence. It's 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 when you're a human and you become aware of, what what the fuck am I? What is this? What's going on? That's existential anxiety, Stephanie. And all human beings struggle with that. I mean, existentialism is, a, is an entire school of philosophy based around it. Existential psychology is a school of philosophy around it. It's It's your search for meaning. That right there is... What am I? Who am I? What is meaning? What is life? What is existence? What is consciousness? And how did I struggle? How do I struggle with that? Or how do I come to terms with that? Because so what can become frightening about that thought? That thought of holy fuck. I'm I'm a microscopic speck in the grand scale of the universe. What the fuck is this? What you're being confronted with there is the chaos of existence and reality. The uncontrollable. You're, you're, it's almost like when we think like that, we're striving for definition and control. And then you realise, fuck, it's all outside of my control. Life is chaos. The universe is chaos. By chaos I mean it's it's undetermined. Anything can happen. And to take from 
John Paul Sartre, who's an existential philosopher, existentialist philosopher, we're condemned to be free. It's almost like when we feel that way, we're we're noticing the sheer freedom of choices that we have, and existentialists say that we choose things like religion and we choose things like working a nine-to-five and hobbies and all this stuff because we're trying to find certainty in something which we know is uncertain. The universe is uncertain and chaotic but yet we strive for certainty and we don't sit well with this grand chaotic uncertainty. How I deal with that is again I take it from cognitive therapy it's I have I, I accept every day that I have no control over what happens to me in my life but I have absolute control over how I react to what happens to me in my life so the way to, to sit with existential anxiety you accept it you accept that the universe is chaos but you you find your personal meaning within it if the universe is meaningless and the universe is vast and the universe is mysterious and when I say the universe I don't necessarily mean space I mean the very fabric of existence that includes space that includes your emotions that includes you your consciousness your friends your friends consciousness your dog's consciousness everything that is existence it includes being alive that's all chaos and overwhelming so you find your own personal meaning within it because that you do have control over and it personal meaning is unique to you I get personal meaning from my creativity when I'm writing making music listening to music, cooking, doing anything which fulfills my personal sense of personal meaning, then I'm not worrying about my insignificance in the universe. I'm just not. Because I have meaning in my day. That keeps existential anxiety at bay. So, what do you get meaning from? And, And it can be anything. Is it sports... Is it fucking an interest in fashion? Is it rubbing dogs? What do you enjoy doing and do you get personal meaning from and a sense of accomplishment from and a sense of narrative from? Like, cooking is the great one for me because cooking has narrative. Set up conflict resolution. Find the moments in your day where you can have set up conflict resolution. Set up. I am hungry. I go to the shop. I plan what my meal is going to be I buy ingredients when I'm at the shop I'm choosing the best ingredients do I want this orange or that orange is that carrot a bit bent or do I want that carrot that looks fresher conflict resolution I purchase the goods I create a meal I prepare it I eat it set up conflict resolution within that story I've created meaning 
meaning comes from story. Story is always a three-act structure, set up, conflict, resolution. Exercise. I go to the gym, I put on my gym clothes, I do the exercise, I enjoy it while I'm doing it. It's difficult, there's conflict. Resolution. I've left the gym, I feel fucking great. Now I'm starting a new journey into fucking uh, Aldi to begin the narrative of purchasing my meal. Set up conflict resolution. These things give me personal meaning in my day and my life. And when I feel a sense of personal meaning, then I'm not beholden to the chaos of the universe. And that's that's human life. That That's human existence. To take it back to what I was talking about earlier, with people living in emergency accommodation or in direct provision, these people are being stripped of access to that type of meaning. And that's what makes it so fucked up. So, what you're experiencing, Stephanie, and the, the reason I'm laughing is just, it's, it's gas, because I know you're getting that feeling for the first time. And every human gets it. And it's always, when you leave, when you stop being a teenager and you're, do you know what it is? It's when you stop being a teenager and you're confronted with the freedom of adulthood, which is fucking terrifying. The freedom of, oh shit, um, I used to go to school and I'd get up in the morning and there was classes and my parents used to look after me. Fuck, now I'm an adult. Existential anxiety always presents at that crucial stepping into the, the autonomy and freedom of adulthood and ultimately being responsible and autonomous. And, and of course, the other thing that can free us and relieve us from existential anxiety, love and compassion. Love, compassion, empathy. There's a reason why most world religions at their very core have messages of love, compassion and empathy. We're social animals. We are social animals built on cooperation and helping one another and loving one, each- one another and forming bonds and doing something kind for someone, for a stranger, listening to somebody that you love, speaking to them and not talking about your problems but listening to what's going on for them, all right? If you have a pet, a dog or a cat, loving them, feeling the warmth of their of their fur feeding a cat you know and and seeing how your action of feeding this cat makes that little cat happy and makes them purr you know hugging someone i know now with fucking coronavirus but love compassion empathy for other people for yourself and for animals there's huge meaning in that and that helps around um that makes existential anxiety seem insignificant Love makes that insignificant because it is, it's kind of, a, it's a selfish enough feeling. It is quite a, a self, um, where is my place in this great universe? But when connection to humans, animals, nature and love and compassion and wishing good and wanting to do good things and see those good things reflected back, that love, compassion and connectivity is also a great way to deal with those feelings in fact that's what can make that seem insignificant love can make the universe seem small do you know what I mean Um, a book I would recommend for you and for anyone who's in this situation I've definitely done a podcast on this 
Um, I'm up to nearly 300 podcasts now. I don't know what fucking one. A book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, who is an existential psychologist. It's about his... He was sent to a, a Nazi concentration camp. He's a, he's a Jewish man, and he spent time in a Nazi concentration camp, and he came out of it, and... It's, he developed a school of existential psychotherapy based on that experience and, and it's called Man's Search for Meaning. That how even in the horrors and terror of a Nazi concentration camp, man, he was still able to search for meaning and he saw other people search for meaning. And he watched as he felt that the people who lived longer were the ones who were able to find meaning even though their lives were so terrible as opposed to the ones who gave up. That was... Frankl's thesis so there you go I'll catch you all next week I'll probably have a hot take come join me on Twitch twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast I'm on most nights it's great crack if you like this podcast you like what I'm doing on Twitch you can come chat to me yart Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.